everybody. Welcome to the Thrive Theology Podcast, where we equip you to live thoughtfully as a Christian by discussing theology, um, because we believe that every Christian is called to be a theologian, um, since theology is not just about studying more about the Bible, but knowing the heart of God. So today is the first episode in our series on soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation or the doctrine of salvation in Christianity. And it's a really big topic. Um, We're hoping to be able to discuss it in about three episodes for you, but we're just, we have lots of info. We're just going to work through it and we'll just kind of see where we end up in terms of time and how many episodes this turns into. There is a lot that is unique in the Christian study of soteriology compared to other religions. C.S. Lewis once said that the thing that makes Christianity different from other religions is grace, specifically God's grace to us. The message of the gospel starts with a God who is scandalously gracious towards his creation. Now, salvation is a term that's thrown around in Christianity pretty often, but it basically means saving. Um, And I wanted to start us off here with... God working in the Old Testament and saving his people from various threats. I'm just going to run through this list quickly. God saves Noah's family and animals on the ark. God saves Abraham and Sarah from Pharaoh twice. God saves Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God saves Jacob from his father-in-law and his brother. God saves Joseph and through him, Joseph's entire extended family and descendants. God saves the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery. God saves Moses from death in the Nile River. God saves the Hebrews from starvation and dehydration in the desert. God saves the Hebrews through various battles with the Canaanites in the Promised Land. God saves the people from various threats throughout the time of the judges. God saves Jonah from drowning and digestion. God saves Israel from the Assyrians during Hezekiah's reign. God saves the righteous remnant all through salvation history. God saves his people from exile. And that's just key moments from the Old Testament. Basically, God is a God who saves. This is a very core part of what he does with his people. So now we're going to go through some of the different doctrines of things like redemption, justification, propitiation, salvation, all of those different shuns, I guess. (laughs) Um, And we're going to start with redemption. So the definition of redemption, according to Merriam-Webster, is the act of making something better or more acceptable, the act of exchanging something for money, an award, etc., and in Christianity, the act of saving people from sin and evil. So the key factor with redemption is that it costs something. In soteriology, the study of salvation, the price for sin is paid with the life of Jesus. We see this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the idea there being that God actually is paying something for the adoption of believers. Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, the idea of redemption is being tied to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 through 20 say this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Um, This is, again, emphasizing the fact that we were bought and that being bought costed something and that God paid that price. In the Old Testament, we gain an understanding that atoning for sin requires a sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 4, God gives the rules about making sacrifices for sins that were committed. If a priest sinned, he had to kill a bull and sprinkle the blood. If all Israel sinned, they had to kill a bull and sprinkle the blood. If a leader sinned, they had to kill a male goat and sprinkle the blood. If an individual Israelite sinned, he had to kill a female goat or lamb and sprinkle the blood. There were a lot of different sacrificial laws, and we aren't going to get into them right now, but within all of the Old Testament sacrificial laws, there are beautiful pictures of Jesus. We want to share with you um, a video that Mike Winger did. It's called Jesus in the Sacrifices of the Old Testament. Um, That was really encouraging to both Emily and I when we first um, watched it, and we're going to link it in the show notes for you. Up, we have the doctrine of justification. So to justify is to declare something to be righteous or in right relationship. So when we say that somebody is justified before God, we're saying that that person has been made right before God and that God and that person now have a right relationship. That person is in right relationship with God. Um, it's really important to de- draw a distinction between justification and sanctification, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Um, they're very closely related, but they are two different doctrines. Justification is a pronouncement about a person's position before God or the fact that their guilt is erased and that their identity is now in Christ instead of in their sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 is a key passage about justification. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we are justified not through anything we do, but through God's grace. The very nature of grace is that it is a gift. So our justification is a gift. We've got to get that from verse 24. God is the one who justifies us and does not compromise his own justice in doing so. Verse 26. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we learn that justification happens by faith, not anything we have done to follow the law of God. Because justification is about one's position before God, how God sees them, this is what happens in the relationship between the believer and God at the moment of salvation. Their sins are forgiven and they stand fully justified before God. 
Next up, we're going to talk about baptismal regeneration. So baptismal regeneration is the idea that baptism is necessary for salvation to be achieved. The traditionally orthodox view of the church is that baptism is not a requirement for salvation, but that it is a command to be followed. Different church denominations have disagreed on the ins and outs of baptism. Some believe that infants should be baptized to symbolize their belonging to the new covenant. And you'll see this in covenant theology, the Roman Catholic Church, and many Reformed churches. While others believe that baptism by immersion is what is commanded in scripture. And you'll see this in the Anabaptist denominations, dispensational theology, and other Reformed churches such as Reformed Baptist churches. If you want to hear an in-depth discussion on baptism, we suggest that you check out our episode Baptism, Infant versus Adult, which is episode 50, and we released that one back in February of 2020. The main argument against the idea of baptismal regeneration is the same as the argument against a faith plus works gospel. Essentially, scripture is clear that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, and grace is no longer grace if we did something to earn it. So if we had to do anything any sort of work to achieve salvation, in this case, baptism, then we're not really being saved by grace. We're being saved by a human work, which is being either fully immersed or um, sprinkled as an infant. So baptismal regeneration is not the traditional orthodox belief of the church, um, but it is held to in a lot of Christian circles. If you want a really in-depth perspective on baptismal regeneration, we recommend that you check out Mike Winger's video. He did a debate um, with another Christian on whether or not baptismal regeneration is biblical. So Mike Winger was arguing um, that baptismal regeneration is not, and the opponent was arguing that it is biblical. So it's like a four-hour debate. He has lots of timestamps throughout. So if you have a specific Bible passage you want to hear them discuss, they have all those timestamps in the show notes. Um, of this YouTube video. And we'll link that in our notes as well. If you want to hear some really, really in-depth discussion on the idea of baptismal regeneration. Next, we're going to look at decisional regeneration or decision theology. This is the belief that a person must make a decision for Christ in order to be saved by the grace of God. This belief has four parts. First, the person hears the gospel or the salvation message. Second, the person accepts the truth of the gospel. Third, the person understands his or her sinful state and need of salvation. And fourth, the person ultimately chooses to accept Christ. Different church traditions look for some sort of proof of this decision for salvation, such as responding to an altar call, saying a sinner's prayer, signing a decision card stating the acceptance of salvation, um, and later on, baptism. Some people believe that too much focus on the decision of faith can take away from other important aspects of Christianity, such as ongoing sanctification, the Calvinist doctrine of regeneration, discipleship, etc. The Billy Graham Crusades from 1947 to 2005 are a good example of evangelism efforts focusing on the decision moment. In our view, Emily's and mine, while we want to guard against this becoming the only thing we strive for as the church, it is a big part of evangelism. Sanctification is typically more part of an ongoing discipleship.
Next up, we're going to jump into the doctrine of sanctification. So sanctification is related to justification, and it's about a person's holiness and how they are becoming more like Christ. It's more about the condition of their heart and their journey towards the righteous person they were created to be in Christ. Sanctification is not a one-time thing like justification. Instead, it's a lifelong process. There are some different ways that sanctification is described, and both of these options describe sanctification as occurring in phases. The first way that this can be described is that it is positional and then progressive or practical sanctification. So this refers to your position before God, or like what we were talking about earlier, which would be justification. So your position before God is changed to somebody uh, um, who is clean before God. And then you have progressive or practical sanctification happening throughout your life. The other way that sanctification can be described is that you have a past phase, a present phase, and a future phase of sanctification. The past refers to your past sins being forgiven. And then the present is the becoming more like Christ throughout your life. And then the third is being perfectly sanctified after death in eternity. That's our future sanctification. Entire sanctification is the idea that a person can actually achieve sinless perfection on earth prior to being glorified. Some verses that are proof texted to support this idea are Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 and 1 John 3 verse 6. Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 says this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And 1 John chapter 3 verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, when scripture uses the word holy, it is referring to something being consecrated or set apart for God. This is the way believers are to be holy. Believers are to live in a way that is fitting of their status as children of God. This view of entire sanctification is also known as Pelagianism, and we're going to have some more on this later when we discuss altar calls. Romans chapter 6, verses 7 to 14, um, discusses sanctification as well. It says, For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So here Paul is saying that we take up our new identity as being dead to sin and alive to Christ, and therefore we do not give sin dominion over us. We have been set free from the power of sin, meaning that we have the ability to live a life of victory over sin in our lives. However, we're not promised that we will never sin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 3 through 8 reminds us that we need to choose to do what is right. It says, 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Lastly, for this episode, we're going to talk about the doctrine of propitiation. Um, This is maybe a term that you don't hear as often um, in the general laity and church. Um, But this is the idea that reconciliation involves a satisfactory appeasement being offered to and received by the person who has been offended. Specifically in Christianity, propitiation is the idea that Christ's blood satisfied the wrath of God towards sinful men. Christianity is also unique in that it is God himself who satisfies God's wrath. So Jesus satisfied the Father's wrath by his death on the cross. Romans chapter 3 verses 23 to 26 say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we quoted that passage or part of it a little bit earlier, but this is an important passage in talking about propitiation as well. That is the end of the first episode here. Um, We talked about all of the doctrines of um, salvation. Um, We hope that this has given you a better understanding of the theological concepts behind maybe of what you thought was a simple thing of salvation. Um, Next time, we're going to go into different atonement theories, some of the different views, Calvinism versus Arminianism. We're going to talk about repentance, etc. Um, Well, also the two things that we had told you are recommended resources. We're going to link those in the show notes for you. We hope you stick around and join us next week. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.